This is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. Senior Vice President at Security Studies Group, David Rebor, straight from D.C. and Florida. David, welcome to the house. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So you did a cover story for us this week that I've been getting calls from Europe and, and Israel from around the world. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, and I'm happy to hear that. I don't think we ever I got a reaction like this. And I'm holding the cover right now. It's Qatar and the Jews. How Jewish lobbyists empowered a menacing regime in the Middle East and how Qatar infiltrated in, in America for, to improve their image and to improve their influence. It's a fascinating story. And how did you ever get connected to this story? So, well, the, um, the cover story is kind of split in two. On one hand, I wanted to draw attention to uh, Qatar itself and, um, and the, the kind of malevolent influence that it's had in, uh, in the United States and, and on Israel and, and frankly, on, on, on the region. Um, and sort of the other half is, is how this happened, how this influence happens in, in the United States. And that's where you get into a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of naming a few names when it comes to uh, some Jewish lobbyists in uh, in the United States in Washington, many of whom worked for uh, for Republicans who, um, who kind of shamefully took this gig. Um, they took very this gig, lucrative gig, very lucrative gig with um, with uh, you know an enemy of the Jews, an enemy of of the United States, you know, and also an enemy of the Saudis, an enemy of the Emiratis, an enemy of the Egyptians. And let's pull back now twenty thousand feet sure. because you know you, it, it's such a complicated story because you know uh, the Americas had this big base in Qatar, yeah. so they've had this so-called military cooperation, and yet. Uh, and yet now, you know, I hear about malevolence. So h- how do you reconcile the right. two? Right. So, so everyone's heard of Saudi Arabia. And for many years, I mean, you had 9-11 and, and you, you had uh, Saudi funding of, of mosques. And we know that the, the Saudi textbook issue and things like that. And, and, and really, the, you know, they, they, were, they were funding Georgetown. They were funding a lot of the kind right. of academic anti-Israel, um, uh, pro-Islamist, uh, effort in the United States and, and not and to glo- mention and globally, uh, right? And the Salafist, you know. which is the more and more extreme yeah, expressions yeah. of I mean, Islam they, throughout the Middle East, they were they were they were doing they were doing uh, quite a lot of this, and um, that's Saudi Arabia. That was Saudi Arabia, and uh, around the time of the Arab Spring, what you had was uh, you could you could make the argument, and personally, I would make the argument. It's a bit unorthodox, but I think it has a lot of merit, which is that the Arab Spring itself and the and the toppling of many of these regimes by you know um, by kind of uh, Muslim Brotherhood forces was an information operation led by Qatar using Al Jazeera. Mm-hmm. You can make that ar- you can make that argument, I think, very well, and it would be sound. Um, and sort of after that, the Saudis and the Egyptians and the Emiratis especially kind of turned around and they were like, wait a minute, we've allowed a wolf through the door. and Because um, the Muslim Brotherhood was not connected to Saudi Arabia. It was. It time. was. I see. So, so a great example, a paradigmatic example of this is the Muslim World League. So the Muslim World League was set up as a, um, as a large kind of um, uh, youth youth activist, you know, training uh, organization. 
back in, uh, you know, I, I believe it was in the 50s and in the 60s. And what were they sending? You know, they were, they, they were, it was pedagogical stuff. So, like, they would send, you know, you know, how to Islam books and, you know, introductory stuff to try to, to, to uh, encourage Muslim youth all around the world to know more about their faith. But what were they sending them? They were sending them uh, books by Karadawi and then books by Hassan al-Banna and, and, and Saeed Qutb and sort of brotherhood material. And it was, um, it was a kind of ideological outpost for the brotherhood that the Saudis were paying for for, for, for decades. As a matter of fact, Huma Abedin's dad um, worked for this outfit. So, right, but what fascinates me is yeah. how Qatar became this... Like right, worse so, than Saudi. So, so, so yeah. you're right. So, so, so this is where it gets back to that. Um, I'm sorry for the long, for lo- the longer exposition, but after the Arab Spring, the Saudis um, and some of their neighbors got together and they said, "Wait a minute, we've been we've been pushing and elevating these Islamists, uh, specifically the Muslim Brotherhood, for decades. We need to stop." So, today, the Muslim World League has gotten rid of all its Brotherhood influence, and as a matter of fact, the head of it just came back from Auschwitz. And he's written wonderful columns that, that go right at the root of the ideological brotherhood um, So there's a mission. split within the Sunni world. Absolutely a split within the right, Sunni world. Right, because we yeah. always hear about the split, the Sunnis and the Shiites represented by Iran. And now right. we're talking about a major split within the Sunni world. Right. And represented primarily with Saudi Arabia and then uh, Qatar. And then Qatar, with they own Al Jazeera. And they have a strong connection with Hamas in mm-hmm. Gaza. Well, they have a strong connection with Hamas for a very good reason. It's because Hamas is the Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza, right? And Qatar is the um, is uh, is is the number one state sponsor of the Brotherhood. And and what's their agenda? So their agenda is is Islamism. Um, people it people find it a little hard to wrap their head around because for the last 20 years when we've thought about sort of when we say radical Islam, um, we have an idea of Taliban. We have an idea of a you know, bunch of guys that, that you know, live in the mountains and they study in madrasas Bin Laden. and they're, you know, very kind of ascetic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, but, but that's not the brotherhood at all. So Karadawi, who is the... Um, the, the Brotherhood's, you know, you could say chief jurist or, you know, sort of most important guiding light who turned down the, the, uh, the, the title of, um, of, of uh, Supreme Guide of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, two separate times. He, he is based out of Qatar and he sort of built the Brotherhood infrastructure in Qatar. But his life's work is dedicated to how do we get fundamentalist Islam and modernity to, to, to sort of work together, which is really, at the end of the day, the Qatari project. You know, how do we build... A, a beautiful I mean Doha is 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 beautiful right you know they they're um, how do we sort of uh, piece together all of the um, all of the benefits of modernity with uh, with the ultimate agenda right of fundamentalist Islam how yes. is that different than Saudi Arabia because from afar it looks like they're kind of trying to do the same thing no or well they're trying to do the same thing in the sense that um, that they're trying to modernize, but they very wisely understand, and and Mohammed bin Salman, the, the the Crown Prince, has been very explicit about, you know, going back years, identifying the Brotherhood itself as 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 uh, as the cause, as the incubator for for all of um, jihadist terrorism. So really, what they're doing is they're where the Qataris are 
um, are giving the, um, the, the jihadis an extra push and trying to get them to, um, I mean, a, a way to put this is, you know, trying to get them to wear suits and present themselves better and more articulately, the Saudis are just trying to crack down on these people. I see, I see. And it, it's interesting because the, the big coming out party yeah. of the Brotherhood was when they won the election in Egypt after the, right. uh, after the Arab Spring. And then for that first year, the Egyptians panicked. They said, oh, my God, what did we do? And they saw that the Brotherhood, which was really in control politically with Morsi, uh, totally reneged and, and ignored the nationalism impulse of a country that's 3,000 years old. And nationalism is hugely important in Egypt. I'm a proud Egyptian, which is independent of religion. Um, right. and, and they missed that. They missed the importance of the economy. And I think they sort of got too excited and they sort of, you know, brought their religious Islamic agenda to the Egyptian people who rebelled. And 14 million people came out on, on the streets and now Sisi is in power. Right. Right? So that was the first really big global example of, of the, the Muslim of the, Brotherhood's of, true of, colors. Of repudiation of the Brotherhood. Yeah, because up until then, they really made a big case for the social services and health care and feeding the homeless and feeding the poor, and that, that was very much part of their brand. But when they finally got into power, the true colors kind of showed. Well, that, I would agree with that. I think, I think when they finally got to power, the things that they were obsessed with came out remember you know the, yeah the things that they were kind of always obsessed with they continued to be so for example and Saudi Arabia saw that well Saudi Arabia saw that Saudi Arabia um, was uh, was was very worried um, about that and um, so what I'm hearing yeah. which is really interesting David is that uh, Qatar hasn't let go of that you know no. well they, they, let they go. can't so 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 also part of the article is um, is I explain a little bit. Uh, without getting into too much detail, why they can't, and and here's the the the, the main the main idea. On one hand, you have um, so Qatar in the fifties and sixties was a backwater. It was really nothing, and and uh, and they were they were sort of starting from scratch when it come when it came to. Um, uh, when, when it came to kind of Islamic cultural life, you know, on one hand, you have in Cairo thousands of years of civilization. You have um, in, uh, in, in, in Turkey, in the Ottoman Empire, you also have you know, right. thousands they had of none years of that. Of, they, got, they got nothing. So they, had, well, they wanted to build something. You know, they're sitting here. They've got oil. They've, they, and and they, they have the money. They wanted to build something. So this, this is why Yusuf al-Qaradawi was so important. Because at the time he was, you know, he was an Al-Azhar graduate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he gave him street street cred, and he said basically, right where they were beginning, that where they said to him, "Hey, come in and build our Islam, and build our institutions." And it just so happened to be that Yusuf Al Karadawi was, you know, the the, guy. the Brotherhood guy to ask because right. these are the the um, these are the issues that he is. Um, that he's been obsessed with all his life. So, um, I mean, you know, aside from you know Hitler being right and 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 uh, you know and uh, support for suicide bombing and anti-Semitism. So and, they they and, went and all in. Yards. So they, they went, went all in, in they on went the Muslim in, Brotherhood. And it's like and and there's no way that they can disentangle themselves. There's and just that no way. created the rift between them and, and Saudi Arabia. And yeah. now you got a real mess on our hands. Right. Because America still has a connection 
with Qatar because they got a big base over there. Yeah, so the 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 uh, the, the base is interesting. Uh, CENTCOM is there. We have, I mean, it's primarily an air base for us, mm-hmm. and it's a very important base when it comes to dealing with Iran because obviously it's just just across the um, just across the the Arabian Sea. Um, so it, it is a very important base, and that and having that base there has enabled them to wield a tremendous amount of influence with the U.S. military. So so right now, uh, it's actually the U.S. military, um, you know what what we would call the, you know what what we would call the deep state. So so it's like the the um, the deep state is really kind of the uh, the national security branch of the administrative state. Um, they're they're very favorably disposed to Qatar because hey they spend a lot of time there and the yeah. Qataris take care of them. When I when I read your story the first time, mm-hmm. David, uh, I said this is the last sneaky state. Hmm. In the past decade, things have gotten less and less sneaky. We kind of everybody's agendas came out. Iran has not hidden its agenda to destroy Israel, and this. This, all these agendas have come out, the agendas out of Turkey, the agendas all over the Middle East. Nothing is that hidden anymore. The Saudi Arabia agenda is really, it's like, yeah, we realize that, you know, we've had problems, but we're trying to modernize. There's something about Qatar. Maybe it's the fact that they use the media, like Al Jazeera, for example. I mean, they're on Facebook with these brilliant bloody videos. Right. And then you see AJ+, Plus. well, that's pretty sneaky. You know, they do something that connects with a real important social cause, and you have no idea this is being funded by Qatar. And then you have a Jewish lobbyist who comes, and you have no idea it's funded by Qatar. And then there's a, an article in the New York Times a few weeks ago, and you have no idea right. that this analyst is being funded by Qatar. And that's what I mean when I say sneaky. Yeah, I because think Because when a, I compare yeah. that to the Muslim Brotherhood agenda, mm-hmm. Wow. I think that's actually a brilliant point, and I never thought about it that way, but I think it's it's completely right. And, you know, Sneaky and the Muslim Brotherhood go hand in hand. Um, that's that's basically what, I mean, that's 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 what they do. That's that's their M.O. But I never really thought about that that way, and, and I guess you're right. Um, when you're dealing with a lot of these other states, their motivations are pretty transparent. I mean, you may not agree with them, but their, you know, their motivations are pretty transparent. Um, it's maybe maybe the only ones left are Qatar and France. France, you know, yeah. <laughs> because liberté, égalité, fraternité, yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, but they, because, they like good food. <laughs> right, right. No, no. I mean, I'm pleasure, not, pleasure. I'm, I'm not bashing the French, but I'm just saying that that they, in particular, have a um, a very rich history of. Um, of using rhetoric on one hand, you know, using very lofty rhetoric on one hand, you know, to cover them making a lot of money on the other hand. Yeah. So here we are, uh, Qatar, with your cover story. I'm going to read the first quote. Sure. Um, Qatar has quickly and quietly built an unrivaled global influence operation. That's from Brooke Goldstein, executive director of the Lawfare Project. What does she mean by that? It's it's uh it's it's a lot. And um, how global is it? And so what it's, is it? it's so it's it's remarkably global. Um, first, we have to I guess pull back a little and figure out what do we mean by a global influence operation mm-hmm. and what is an influence operation. So an influence operation or an information operation they're they're both different, but we can group them together this way. Qatar does both. Uh, we've heard a lot about it over the last couple of years because of the. Um, 
because of the the kind of Russia craziness that has 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 swept the uh, the U.S. political world. But really, what it is is um, is kind of weaponized information that leads you to a very specific policy conclusion. And so, for example, if um, if you see something on Twitter that is you know, a, a tweet, it's a photo, and it's a kind of terrible, gruesome photo, and it says, look, the Israelis are doing this in Gaza. And it turns out that, hey, the photo is actually from Chechnya. And um, that's a great example of a sort of drive-by information operation. Qatar does that? Um, in many ways, Qatar, Qatar does that. But, I mean, that's just a... That's An just, example. The, yeah, yeah, that's right. just like the most unsophisticated example. Just to sort of, um, you know, so sort of whet people's, um, uh, you know, appetite for for the other thing. Um, the other thing, of course, what what Qatar does is it does kind of that on a on a far more sophisticated level. So, for example, let's say, um, let's say you have uh, Qatar funding a think tank and Qatar funding a, um, a news network, and then also Qatar funding another media outlet. So let's say you tune into Al Jazeera one night and you're watching an, a show about anything you can imagine. So the network is going to be doing something with a pro-Qatar angle. He's going to be interviewed. I mean, think about the sort of pieces that go into a, a news package. He's going to be interviewing an expert who is paid by Qatar. Um, he's probably going to, uh, to speak to a think tank person who is also paid by Qatar, at least one, probably three or four. And then if he's on TV, he might go and he, he might ask a politician what the politician thinks about it. And lo and behold, uh, the politician has the Qatari foreign ministry spending you know, $3 billion in his state, like, for example, South Carolina. Mm. Really? $3 billion? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's what we know yeah. about. I'm right. sure it's higher. But, so, that's, but that explains why, for example... I mean, let, let you know, you know, naming names. I mean, that explains why everyone, uh, every, every, almost every politician in South Carolina, is remarkably anti-Saudi and pro-Qatar. So they're buying influence because they have an unlimited amount of money. What what strikes me too is there's an ideology behind it. Whereas, all so often the agenda is to stay in power. You have a dictator who wants to stay in power. CC wants to stay in power. Well, these so guys want to stay in power too. Do they have that agenda? Yes. The leaders of Qatar. Who are the key bad guys? So they've got. So they've got a. Um, they've got a domestic agenda, agenda as well. And people ask, why would they be doing this? Specifically, like, why would they be declaring war? You know, they. They are. They are by all accounts, other than other than with regards to propaganda, they are by all accounts the the very junior partner in the GCC in the Gulf Cooperation Council. They went to war with Saudi Arabia. They went to war with with the Emirates, you know, with Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. They went to war with all of these countries, and um, and everyone was kind of surprised. And I mean, in what way can Qatar compete with um, the big guys? With, with the big guys, and it's in the information war. That's how they can compete. So the question is, why are they doing this? Why would they get give, get put themselves into this position, at least regionally? Um, a good answer is. Nearly 90% of Qatar is comprised of foreign workers. Nine zero. Um, that's that's a crazy number any way you slice it, especially when you're dealing with um, 
I mean, in, in a lot of places in the Gulf, Qatar especially, they have really draconian rules for how foreign workers can work and operate. For example, you can only have three jobs mm-hmm. while you're working in Qatar. If you run afoul of, you know, I mean, if, um, if you somehow get in trouble with the government, which, you know, it's not exactly transparent how to mm-hmm. do that, you can remain there. I mean, I've spoken to people who were not allowed to leave for mm-hmm. years. It's a it's a relatively common thing. And have they so, made, so they've got to crack yeah. down. They've got to crack down on their internal problems. Mm. So they're trying to foment revolutions in in the um, you know with their neighbors. I see. I see. And yeah. how about Iran? What role does Iran play? I- Iran with is, Qatar. Yeah, I mean, uh, I- Qatar is an Iranian um, ally, which is crazy because Muslim yeah. Brotherhood is Sunni. And Iran is Shiite. Yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of the things that we learned sort of since 9-11, since the Iraq war about this region um, are either were, have either been overtaken by events or have been total nonsense. Right. And the Sunni-Shia divide when it comes to fighting their enemies doesn't mean very much. I mean, we know for a fact, you know, for, for example, from the uh, for documents from the bin Laden laid, raid, that um, there was a lot of there was a lot of cross pollination mm. between Iran and um, and uh, and 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 Bin Laden and, and Al Qaeda. I mean, in fact, they they there was a lot of cooperation. I mean, there's I, a lawsuit. I, I wonder if yeah. uh, Qatar feels now they may have miscalculated because you know, during the eight years of Obama, first of all, you started off with the failed Iraq War, so America lost some credibility. And then America lost even more credibility when Obama decided to pull back on American influence and heighten the influence of Iran. So I wonder if they might have miscalculated because, you know, their rapprochement with Iran happened while Iran was on the ascendant and they were being courted by the international world with the Iran nuclear deal and so forth. That has radically changed in the last two years under the new administration in the U.S., hasn't it? Yes, policy-wise. I wonder if wise, they're having second thoughts. I don't think they are. I think they're winning. You do? Yeah, I think they, they see the end zone. I, I, I think um, Just because they're pouring so it's much It's really money. bad. Yeah, it's, it's the money. Um, it's the fact that um, that politicians are, I, I don't know if I can say, I mean, politicians in the United States. Are vulnerable to money. They're so vulnerable to money. I mean, that's that's the kindest way. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with a, with a, with a, I uh, did already, a nastier yeah. <laughs> way to put it. But um, but it's really ridiculous. Um, it's really ridiculous what's happening. I'm sure the, the Trump administration has been kind of okay on this. Um, not very good, not very bad. They've mm-hmm. been jumping around in terms of policy about Qatar, but I'll tell you, the next Democrat, the, the, this, it, you know, it's not going to be Trump forever. It's not going to be Democrats. It's not going to be Republicans forever. The next Democrat that comes in is going to be 150 percent pro Qatar, and you just see it. You know, it, it has to do with the with the, the spreading of money. It has to do with. There's another article I wrote in the Federalist. Why the why is the U.S. media um, waging war on Saudi Arabia and um, and I sort of talk about how Qatar was very skillful in finding a, a, a lane within the American within American public discourse for mm. itself. So basically, what it did was it went and said, "Okay, Qatar, we're you know the U.S. media is left leaning. We're going to structure our that. argument. Mm. Yeah, we're going to structure our argument such that in order to." Um, uh, in order to be left-leaning, you have to support us. I have to tell you, that's brilliant. 
Yeah, look, because, I mean, know, they're smart. Whoever came up with the strategy, I don't know who it is, whether it was actually somebody in Doha or, or a consultant from somewhere. Whoever came up with the strategy, I mean, hats off to them because because they're um, they're legitimately brilliant operators. I mean, the uh, the Al Jazeera network is a sort of a perfect example of that. And then the, the lobbyists that they choose, and then this facade of the future of the economy and so forth. So this is what we're talking about. A lot of people who read your article uh, wrote to me and called me and said, I had no idea that these guys, the only thing they heard was during the war with Israel and the Qatar-Hamas connection. Right. But even then, Qatar becomes almost a savior, right? Yeah. It's like the Qatar money is given to Hamas so that the rockets couldn't stop. So even there, David, there's a sense that they're doing something good for Israel. Yeah, no, I mean it's crazy. I I I I was glad to see the um, I was glad to see this getting uh, a lot of attention because, I mean, some of us have been out there sort of screaming in 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 the public trying to get people to pay attention to Qatar and and most people couldn't identify it on a map. Most people just just don't just you know it, I mean it's not part of the conversation, and hopefully this. Uh, this article and some of the other attention that's that's coming. Look, Qatar is going to be in the media quite a lot in in 2020 because they've got the uh, the World Cup there, right? You know, which they 120 degrees. Yeah, which good they, luck. Which they spent a lot it's of money crazy. Um, uh, to buy in, in that weather in that heat wave. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 very crazy. Right. And um, you know, and and right now they're building all kinds of facilities using you know what amounts is, is that's going to be used slave, once. slave labor. That's going to be, be used once, once. and then that's it's another that's it. yeah. kind of interesting scandal. The um, the other thing I find interesting with Qatar is there's no real human face. You know, a lot of these countries they have a human face. Saudi Arabia they've had human faces right. constantly on CNN and on the news. You have you know there's the old. Uh, Sheik and then the new one, and you see right. them all the time. Egypt has Sisi, and, and Iran has their human face. There's no real human face for Qatar unless I've missed it. Uh, well, you, who's you the leader? Well, you, you have uh, Al Thani is the is is the leader, and that's the that's the royal family. That's it's all a bunch of Al Thanis. Yeah, and, uh, it, and but it's crazy. but they rarely appear. Right, I mean they they rarely that might be a, part a, of their in the media. That's part of yeah. Look, I mean it's definitely part of uh, it's definitely part of a media strategy. And I think, I mean, for example, when they pay agents in the United States, um, they know, I mean, here's, they, they do what I would do. You know, any smart PR person would say, okay, um, we're not so much trying to build up the numbers for Qatar, but what we want to do is we want to we build up the negatives for our enemies. Oh, I see. So, for example, they'll go and they'll say, oh, you're big on Twitter. Okay, David, here's... Um, you know, here's uh, here's some money, and I just want you to tweet nasty stuff about Saudi Arabia. I see, I see. Because and then you don't, and then you don't know, and then because look, you don't know where it's coming from, it, and the real right. nasty stuff yeah. since the murder of that Khashoggi, uh, Khashoggi, who yeah. worked for the Washington Post. My God, the horrible press on Saudi Arabia. It still goes on to this day. Yeah, it's. I'm it's, sure you know it's justified yeah, it's, that it's, they did something horrible. Well, he's he's um, no, I mean it's it's look. It's uh, they had me on NPR to talk about um, to talk about that because they couldn't find somebody to um, <laughs> they had to find me because they couldn't find somebody to to support the the, the president's statement on uh, you know supporting Saudi Arabia after after Khashoggi's death 
And and look, I mean, what I said then is what I'll say now. I I think that a lot of the hysterical over the hysterical anti-Saudi overreaction because of uh, the death of this one guy and and. And and the truth of the matter is, we still don't know exactly what went down in that and room, and whether it was mandated by the leader that we yeah, deal yeah, with, of right? course, no, no, no. I mean, we, right. we 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 still don't know. For example, I've heard from a very good source that they were trying to grab him and bring him back to Saudi Arabia for questioning, and they administered a um, uh, they administered a, a, a kind of needle to knock him out, mm-hmm. and it was the wrong amount. And he had a heart attack. Right. And they were and, and look, I mean it's a dirty business. But, but whatever if, it is, but the, Qatar think, probably felt they hit the jackpot. Right. I mean, do you that think happened. do you think and, and so did Turkey. But uh, right. no, seriously, I mean in, in terms of um, I mean we can say it's ugly, we can say it's a terrible thing, but I mean, do you think that no Americans died by uh, uh, you know, that nobody died at American hands in a in a rendition site or in a black site mm-hmm. in, under the same circumstances as a mistake? It happens. Um, you know, Khashoggi was not a journalist by any standard of the word. I mean, maybe if you want to say he was published occasionally in the Washington Post, that makes him a journalist. Okay, sure. But he was also an intelligence operator. Yeah, I mean, me- he was the main intel guy um, for for sort of the, the previous uh, regime, for you know, Turkey me- al-Faisal. Meanwhile now, the big thing that's coming up is this famous peace plan hmm. from the U.S. that's been you know, in the, in the works for a couple of years. So you see Saudi Arabia and some of the Gulf countries who are allied with America really making a genuine effort mm-hmm. to support it and to encourage the Palestinians to be more open-minded. And I wonder how Qatar is going to deal with this, you know, with their PR obsession as well as I'm sure they have zero interest in making peace with Israel. How, how are they going to handle this? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, so so far they've just kind of kept their head down and 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 have said nothing. Um, but Saudi Arabia has an opportunity to look really, really good. Could you imagine sure. what would happen if Saudi Arabia decides to like put down ten billion dollars to help the life of Palestinians and to sort of start a new process, a bottom-up process that really leads to a better life, which is really the Jason Greenblatt and Kushner approach. Right. They're starting with a better life for Palestinians, which right. I think is brilliant, by the way. They said everything we've done for 30 years has failed. So let's try something different. We're going to focus on we're going to improve your lives and then see where that takes us, you know, this meeting on June 25th. And, and Saudi Arabia is really like all in on this. Right. And then they might end up looking like gold if God, you know, willing, this thing ever succeeds. Look, I, I think so. I think, I mean, I know that there are people in Saudi Arabia who are who are waiting for the right time to, um, to sort of reach out and to have, sort of have normal relations with Israel. But, you know, they're, they're getting a lot more chutzpah these days i mean i'm i'm getting more and more you see that they're not afraid anymore to yeah to show some of these well i always love i mean one of my favorite things about this kind of new world of the middle east that um that we're in now because it's a completely different universe and and if you you know i mean if you showed up from even 5 years ago it wouldn't make sense to you but um but they used to say i remember uh, i remember realists you know quote unquote realists and on foreign policy in the united states used to say you know 
um, we really shouldn't be supporting Israel because, you know, on one hand, um, the, their their enemies are so powerful, they're a much better bet, you know. I mean, we would mm -hmm. rather go with, you know, they were called realists or Arabists. Mm -hmm. And we'd say, you know, we're losing so much. Right, just just the, the power differential. I mean, if you, if you, if you take every other consideration, moral, religious, ethical, you know, you take every other consideration and you put them aside and you say, on one hand, you have these, these you know, rich, powerful Arabs with resources. On the other hand, you have little Israel. It's easy that we need to support the people with the power. So the same people now in the new Middle East, now that Israel is, is in many, many ways together with this, um, you know, is... is Virtual coalition. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a very much a virtual coalition, and um, and and they're working together in ways that we never thought was possible. Now these same people are saying, you know what? Maybe we should support Iran. Maybe Iran and Qatar. Maybe they're they're they're, they're better. And 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 I kind of chuckle at this because it it, it reveals that that um, for a lot of these a lot of these people, self-described realists, it never was really about the argument. You know, they're going to figure out a way to put themselves on the opposite side of Israel any way they slice it. Right. And I mean, the the Iran deal, uh, how do you, you're an expert, you've been studying this for years and writing about it. Uh, Iran, are they on the up? Are they on the down? I mean, right now, the sanctions have been brought back in from America. There's a lot of bluster going on on both sides. What's your take on the Iranian situation? Are they afraid? Are they... Do they still so, have the same power and threat? So the, the Trump administration has, even the Washington Post, which is not known to give out compliments to the Trump administration, uh, has acknowledged that the, um, that, their, that the White House's strategy, their maximum pressure strategy on Iran has been working. And um, their strategy can be described basically as we're going to apply a lot of economic pressure to get them to pull back from their sort of uh, regional commitments or overcommitments. So, for example, um, the money that they send to the Houthis in Yemen, um, the money that they send to Shia militias in Iraq, to Hezbollah in, um, uh, you know, both in, in Syria and, and also in Lebanon, and in other places as well, throughout Africa and throughout uh, Latin America. So this has really been working. And, you know, they, they're going to have to choose at the end of the day. You know, do we, do we feed ourselves or do we send money to Qusam Soleimani to spend on, on weapons and murder? And obviously this is a much better deal than to start dropping bombs on them and, to, and to, to go to war. This is a much better, smarter strategy. And that aspect is working. The other aspect that I think I'm, I'm kind of um, uh, more downbeat about is the bigger meta issue which is um, U.S. political polarization. And it touches every subject that we deal with. It touches the Middle East in a very big way, which is, which is we're at the point where Iran's lobby shop, just like you know, Qatar's lobby shop, um, is the Washington Post. You know the biggest anti-Saudi. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, they, they, David Rhodes. Yeah, I mean, these these guys are these guys are just ridiculous and over the top. And and you know, the media and and many Democrats still pushing are for the lined Iran up. Deal. They're still pushing for the Iran deal. And and you know, you have you have a, a mix of two things. On one hand, they still like the Iran deal and they're loyal to the Obama legacy. On the other hand, they hate Trump so much that they would support him over over anyone. So you you have a um, uh, 
the American political polarization creates a situation where, you know, next time there's a Democrat in the White House, let's say it's Kamala Harris. That's who I think it's 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 going to be uh, as far as the nominee in in 2020. Um, sh- her foreign policy is going to be very, very, very different, and and we've kind of entered a new era where her foreign policy isn't just going to be a different way to do the same things. It's going to be um, different things. D- different things. I mean, it's it's there. There are no more. You know, there there's no more bipartisan agreement. You you know, we used to talk about the bipartisan mm-hmm. consensus on Israel. Mm-hmm. There's no more bipartisan consensus on anything, mm-hmm. and that goes for allies. So the um, the the Democrats today they hate our traditional allies in um, in in the Middle East, and they feel that Qatar and Iran and Turkey, specifically those three, are a much better bet compared to Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. You know, it's interesting because you and I, we have a friend in common who wrote an amazing book, Strong Horse, Mm. you know, Lee Smith. Mm -hmm. And within all the complexities that we talk about, there are certain real simple ideas that cut right through. And this is a simple, brutal, timeless idea that has um, animated the Middle East for decades. The idea that people bet on the strong horse, who's got the most power. Right, and I think what's been remarkable uh, in recent years is that Israel has become a major strong yeah. horse in the Middle East. So that even if you want to make the case that put aside all the democratic ideals that we share in common and the emotional connection with Israel, you can make a strategic case that uh, the fact that Israel has become such a strong horse mm-hmm. that countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt have now come out you know, on our side, virtually, on our side being on Israel's right. side, uh, that uh, that's something that can't be overlooked. The growth of Israel is a really strong horse. It's, it, I think that's absolutely right. A lot of it, uh, some of it has to do with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember I was, I was in meetings at, at the White House around the time of the Jerusalem embassy um, decision. And sort of prior to that, too, in the, in the lead up to that. And... Um, just in discussions with with administration people, on one hand, the the kind of media consensus, and and what I would call like maybe the idiots consensus, was that oh my God, you're going to upset this wonderful peace process thing, right. that that's in, that is, is that's, you know is this kind of endless nonsense. Yeah, this this endless nonsense that that has been going on and on and on. And and the White House's response, which was totally right, was look. Um, the sooner we get people to understand and agree on reality, the better. The reality is Israel is not giving up Jerusalem. That's the reality. Nor the Golan Heights. Right, right, right. But, but at that point, that's, that's, it, right. that's what was under discussion. It's not going to happen. So your fantasies about what happens after they do this are immaterial. It's not going to happen. Let's deal with reality. And... and um, and and look, I mean, Trump being very supportive of uh, of of Israel right off the back, uh, right off the bat, was very good as far as as far as the Arabs, because the Arabs turned around and they said, okay, I mean, why should we why should we ally with a loser? Yeah, it, it always amazes me how we could support the biggest sponsor of terrorism in the world, which is Iran, 
which chops up, you know, just, you know, swallows one capital, one country after another. They, they were so blatant, David, with their, you know, and the, 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 the havoc that they've run throughout the Middle East. How can we support that? I, I, I sometimes wonder whether they ripped us, they ripped off the world with the Iraq nuclear deal in a way that we might not even understand in the sense that we don't mind waiting 10 years to build right. a real thing. We've been around for 5,000 years. Right. So you're telling us we can be accepted in the world of nations, get $150 billion in sanctions relief, which enables us to march across the Middle East and wreck our havoc, whether it's in Syria or Libya or Yemen or Gaza and so forth. That was like a really sweet deal for them. And in a way, I think that's one of the reasons they're panicking now, because they realize it was such a sweet deal that they've lost some kind of a leverage. It's not that big a deal for them to go back to the Iran nuke to, to the the situation it was before, because they cheat anyways. Right. So, so the Iran deal was one of the reasons why it was so destructive. It wasn't even the the you know the 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 kind of cash payment um, uh, that came that came on pallets of you know unmarked bills. Um, but really, it was the administration, the then Obama administration's effort to dismantle the the kind of worldwide consensus against Iran and its nuclear program. So the Bush administration had spent eight years building the case, and you know, not building the case for war, but building the case specifically for um, the fact that Iran having a nuclear weapon is dangerous, and we're going to. Um, you know, we're going to get uh, every nation on record as mm -hmm. supporting this. Now, to be honest, a lot of these countries, especially in Europe, I mean, so, so here's here's a question for you: What's who's who is the um, um, who is the you know what is what is the nation that does the most business with uh, with Iran? Germany, I have no idea. Yeah, South Korea. Wow. How do we get the South Koreans? That, and and uh, and I didn't know this, um, and you know. So now we see how Iran and the and the North Korea negotiations kind of feed into one another. Because mm -hmm. on one hand, you've got to give North Korea something if you wanted to stop doing business with Iran, right. or you've got to give South Korea something, right? So um, meanwhile, you have just about every country in Europe that really wants to to you know, really wants to make money. They want their businesses to make money, and, and Iran is, is a lucrative market. So um, as soon as the, as the Iran deal happened, it's like, okay, well, we have a new reality now. We're actually talking to these people. Now it's not so bad if, if you know, Siemens and right. some of our other companies will go and start doing business with um and they with, did, and they Iran. started it, right. and now some of them are pulling out. Yeah, look, and and then they call the U.S. Treasury Department, and they say, hey, you know, uh, you know, uh, Secretary Mnuchin, uh, it, you know, these these sanctions are really hard on us. You mm -hmm. know, our 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 Siemens people really want to make a lot of money, and and you know, and and they don't want to go through these these hoops when it comes to Iran. And and look, I mean, that can be that's a very powerful argument. And, and that explains why, for example, the U.S. Treasury Department isn't as aggressive on, on some of this as it should be. And, you know, with the political polarization here in America, I'm just we're seeing how this is evolving now into two camps, right? Mm -hmm. And you get the Democratic camp that's sort of, you know, on the side of Iran and the side of Qatar. Mm -hmm. and, and then you have the Republican camp on the side of Israel on the side of Saudi Arabia, on the side of Egypt, if one could 
over, grossly oversimplify right. this whole thing. This is kind of the direction that we're seeing and how tragic that our own political partisanship and polarities here is influencing our strategy in the Middle East. Right. Well, I, th I mean, look, I, th I think it's, it's inevitable. I th it's, it's definitely negative, and I'm not happy about it, but it is also... It's inevitable. I, I did. I wrote another article about that this particular issue for the uh, the American Mind, the Claremont Institute publication, and and that's what it, what it's about. It's it's sort of you know what what can we expect from the Democrats on foreign policy after the um, after the the most recent congressional election? And I said that it would go in this particular direction. The cynicism yeah. is so thick, David. This morning I read about these peace processors, mm. David Aaron Miller. And Martin what has Indic, he been right of about? Course. Martin Indyk, yeah. David Aaron Miller, and even Dan Shapiro. Utter, complete failure for 30 years. This is, if you, right. if you ever had to define the word failure, it would be the, the Israeli-Palestinian yeah. peace yeah. process, and they were right at the center of it. And for them to criticize the June 25th meeting, where they're going to start a different approach to peace with the Palestinians, which is the economic approach to make Palestinian lives better. The criticism that they're now throwing at this is really... Well, I mean, I mean you know, Martin Indyk is, um, is, is... I mean, if you want to know what the Qataris feel about any of this, just ask Martin Indyk, because okay. he's, he's a good indicator. He's, they pay he's, him a lot a, of money. They pay him a lot of money. Actually, they pay him so much money that he had the chutzpah to, to appear on Twitter in a photograph accepting a check. From, he from got the away with Royal that, family. right? Remember a couple years ago? Yeah, yeah. I mean, though, though increasingly these these guys are not getting away, uh, away with it. I mean, uh, Brookings is a good example. Brookings is the is the oldest think tank in the United States. Um, it goes back to kind of the early progressive era, and uh, around I think around the Woodrow Wilson presidency. And the idea for it was, you know, it was the first first thing that was like, hey, let's put together a group of very smart people to advise the government on things to do. So here we, you know, fast forward to to our time, and um, and Qatar says, "Hey, these guys are very powerful. Why don't?" And he approached them, and he said, "And and they approached the, uh, Brookings, and they said, "Hey, can we franchise you guys? Can we open a Brookings Center Doha in Qatar?" And they said, oh, "I guess you know that's fine." So now Brookings Center Doha is 100% owned by the Qatar Foundation, which is a, which is the, a state, you know, controlled entity. Mm -hmm. And it, it's basically, they, I mean, they pay a licensing fee to, uh, you know, what amounts to a licensing fee to Brookings. But everything that comes out of Brookings Doha, is, number one is because it's a foreign, um, uh, uh, because it's a foreign institution, we have no disclosures. We have no idea how much money is being poured into that, number one. Number two is, we, I mean, there's no oversight, and it has the Brookings name. So when Shadi Hamid writes something that is pro-Islamist, pro-Brotherhood, pro-Qatar, it comes out with a, um, under, the, under the Brookings label, but it is, in fact, a complete, a complete so, product of the Qatari state. So yesterday, when Martin Indyk decided to tweet against the peace plan, right, he was thinking about all the money he's getting from Qatar, and he was thinking that anything good about this peace plan is going to be good for Trump, and it's going to be good for the Republicans, and it's going to be good for Saudi Arabia. I'll leave you with this dream, mm -hmm. this thought okay. experiment, this imagination. I want to leave you with this one, David. Okay. Um, 
because you know I'm an independent. Mm -hmm. I, I don't pick sides. I try not to. I go back and forth. If if the guy on the left Democrat is a good idea, I'll go with that. The guy Republican is good. I'll go with that. That's usually my comfort zone. Right. Is to always just look at it objectively. And what would happen if do a thought experiment? The by some incredible miracle, mm. the peace plan works out. That what has failed for a hundred years, every president, every leader, every country, every international group, every effort to reconcile Israel and the Palestinians have utterly failed. And all of a sudden, the most hated president in American history comes in and actually helps resolve this, in, this, this um, wet dream of the world, of the left, of the Democrats, of everyone, and Martin Indyk, and Aaron David Miller, and all these guys. What would happen then? What would happen well, then? The, Do you hate Trump so it, yeah. much? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right now, the New York Times already decided that this is going to be a failure. Right. They wrote a piece this week saying, you know, nobody has any faith in it. It was so unbalanced, right? Mm -hmm. So you're sensing, and although I'm not, I'm not a Trump fan, but I'm just looking at this, I say, can't we just try to see what's right and what's right. good and forget about who's behind it and give it some credibility? And I, I guess... They're not doing it. No, I mean, of course, because whatever happens, uh, they're going to spin it as, um, I mean, it depends who, but they'll spin it as being too one-sided towards Israel. They're going to spin it as, as um, uh, you know, I mean, they'll find some Palestinians to, to condemn it. They'll find Oh, they're some already Arabs condemning condemn. it. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, of, uh, of course. But, but look, I mean, the truth of the matter is, if the idea is to create... Um, to create the kind of preconditions for a peace settlement mm -hmm. based on um, based on improving the economy of the um, of of the people, hey, that's new. It hasn't been tried, and 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 it certainly hasn't been tried because Palestinian leadership hasn't given a, a you know given a wit about it. Exactly. Uh, exactly. If they wanted to improve the lives of their people, they could have done so within the last twenty years at at uh, at, at any point. Um, I know that the, uh, look, I, I had friends that were involved uh, very closely with kind of um, sort of building enterprise zones, um, you know, immediately after Oslo. Yeah, and Fayyad, when he came on, they got rid yeah, of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The, the, the idea was to, to, to do this. But, you know, look, graft and corruption and Islamic jihad are a lot more attractive. You know, I mean, when. And they're the biggest enemies of the Palestinian yeah. people. Uh, on that note, David, I want to keep in track. Uh, keep in touch with you on your story. Uh, keep us up to date on what's happening with Qatar uh, here in America and around the world. And we hope you write a, another major story for us very soon. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you.